the rain has come, and that means uh, things like mud puddles. We have a two-year-old granddaughter, and she has rubber boots. And so look out mud puddles, right? You can identify with that. You've seen that before. Probably, perhaps you've been there before. Maybe you're no longer two, but you still love a good mud puddle when you find one. It reminded me, thinking about that, mud puddles reminded me of a, of a quote from C.S. Lewis that describes life in this world and the things that attracts us, and he compares it to mud pies in contrast to, in British terms, a holiday at the shore, a vacation at the beach. Let me put that quote before us again, C.S. Lewis. We, we consider, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, the staggering nature of the rewards and the future that is set before us in the Gospels, and I would add in the book of the Revelation, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Compared to what's ahead of us and what we choose, we are asking for too little. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition and distractions when infinite joy is offered us, is ahead of us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum or stomping mud puddles because he or she cannot imagine what is meant by the offer, offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's not that we ask God for too much. Perhaps we ask God for too little. Thinking about this, I was reminded of our grandson, Jamie. Jamie's four. And uh, when they were visiting us this last, um, this last Christmas time, we took them at one point down to San Diego area to see his great-grandparents. And while we were there, of course, we're so close. They live in Zimbabwe, inland. There's no, there's no ocean shore in Zimbabwe. And so we took them out to the beach, out to the Pacific Ocean. And there Jamie stands at the shore of the Pacific. Well, of course he's smiling. He's with Grandpa. But I, we, rem we remember him standing there and looking out at the ocean in awe. And he says, Wow, that's a lot of water. Now, in Zimbabwe, they are careful about water. It's not that they live in a dry, deserty place, but they have a dry season that lasts a long time. And where they live, they actually don't have a well. They tried boring a well, and there was no water at the bottom of it. And uh, so they actually pay to have a truck come about once a month or so to fill up this big water tank on a, on a, on a support full of water that then they get the, house for, uh, get the water for their house and drinking water and, and, uh, and so on from. And so they're careful with water. They don't just wasted to use it casually. Jamie knows there's a big tank and a truck that comes and there's water. And if that water ran out, that would be the end of the water. Water is a big deal. And for him to stand on the shore of the Pacific Ocean and see water that was beyond his comprehension, you literally can't see the end of it. In fact, you can't even see the beginning of it from one place on the shore, can you? It's overwhelming. And yet that, that was a whole, opened a whole new path in his thinking about water. Well, there's something about that in 
this book of the Revelation. This is what God is doing for us. We are standing on the shore looking toward his kingdom and toward his eternity and we're saying, wow, that is a lot of glory. I cannot take it all in. But in contrast to my mud puddles, it's amazing. And it captures our imagination. It ought to capture our ambitions. It ought to direct our thinking and our living in a whole new way. Because there's a reality out there before us that we hadn't really imagined. Certainly don't have a grasp of. We don't master it. And yet we want this glimpse that God has given us to master us. We want it to grab hold of us. We want it to compel us. To constrain us. A song that we sang, ancient words, ever true, changing me, changing you. How is it that God's word changes us? We see a little of that in this book and God's intended purpose for it for those seven churches that it was originally sent to and they gave it to others and it spread through the churches in the end of the first century and it has spread through the churches through the centuries to our day. God has given us this book. And the truth of it was intended to change them it was intended to strengthen them in the midst of a very difficult present to remind them of God's future and his promise and how sure the reality of that future, though we do not yet see it, we walk by faith, not by sight, but it is sure and it is certain and it is real and he can tell us all about it. And that is our future reality. It will be just as he said and that strengthens those churches for the troubles that they find themselves in. That, likewise, the truth of God's word, his hope, the promise of his vindication for their faith, of his reward for their faithfulness in the spite of such opposition, that strengthens them and keeps them going. Recently, we had Reformation Day. Not sure if you caught that in the midst of all of Halloween, but... The reformers, standing in the midst of a society and even a church that opposed them and the truth of the gospel, what strengthened them was the clarion call through the scriptures that the just shall live by faith. That God's salvation is not earned and worked for and achieved by our doing, but by what God has done for us in Jesus Christ our Savior. Those who are just and right before God are right before God on the basis of faith in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. That word strengthened them at a very difficult moment. And we are grateful that God's word strengthened them to stand for the truth. And so in our generation the same. God's word strengthens us to stand, to walk with him, to know and to follow Jesus. And the world around us is going off in another direction is no longer interested in the things of God nor of his Christ. And yet, he is our future. In fact, there is no future apart from him. And so, to him we hold. And yet, at times, it's hard. 
And so God has given us this word describing his future so that we will be clear in our confidence in Christ's coming. God shows his church something worth believing in so that we can show others around us something worth believing in. And we will show others around us something worth believing in when we ourselves believe it. And God just doesn't say, believe it, believe it. He paints the picture for us. He describes it. He shows us. He said, this, my child, is your future. This is your reality in me. Let this reality strengthen you in the midst of the difficult presence. He knows it's difficult. In fact, in John chapter 17, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he prayed for his disciples, those that he soon would be leaving behind. But he did not only pray for his disciples, he also prayed for you and I. Did you know that that's in there? He prayed for you that night. And I want to pick it up in chapter um, 17 and verse 14. Jesus praying to his Father, let's listen in. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that in the midst of it you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Use your truth. Your word is truth. Use that to sanctify them, to keep them, to set them apart. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, so that they also may be sanctified in your truth. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus prays that God would strengthen, continue his work of making holy those disciples. And not only these 12, but others who would hear and believe through their testimony. That he would strengthen them, he would grow them in their faith. Through his word. That they would grow in their faith through his word so that they would follow Jesus' example of not being served but serving, laying his life down a ransom for others. And so they would also give sacrifice for the sake of others, also knowing of hope and salvation in Jesus. So the prayer remains today Father, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. And I would suggest to you that the closing burden of the book of the Revelation is that the, our Lord Jesus, risen and coming, intends to strengthen his church by reminding us of his future and to hold on to that in the present. Let his future direct what we do in the present and we will find then that we will also be inviting others into his future. Let's, let's look into his word together in Revelation chapter 22. I want to begin in verse 6, pick up from where we left off last week. And to be clear, we want to be clear in our confidence in Christ's coming. 
This is one of those books that we're often not terribly clear about. It's a difficult book, and so we, we lay it aside and say, that's probably too hard for us to understand. And that was a mistake that Christians, even in the medieval area, prior to the Reformation, they had made that mistake. And it was time to wake up, and the Reformation is perhaps time again for us to awake in the midst of difficult times coming. In verse 6, he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. We'll put all the emphasis on the soon, and it's not soon enough according to our timetable, is it? We wished it were sooner. And yet we easily zip right past the what must. This has to happen. God will not leave this work undone. God's redemption for restoration, God's return back to the garden, which is good, which is very good, in fellowship with us, continuing into eternity, that cannot come unless he finishes what he's promised and what he's described in the book of Revelation. These things must happen. It is trustworthy and true. It will be just as the Lord has said. I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. What does it mean to keep the words? To hold on to these words as true. To continue to believe in that which you do not yet see. We will hear, as Peter described, those who mock and say, where is this promise of his coming? Here is the promise of his coming. When they ask that, I guess we should point to where we heard it from. We heard it from him. And his word is trustworthy and true, and we can rely on it. That's a, he's borrowing from Jeremiah 42 there. If you go, Jeremiah reminds the, those who were left in, in, in the land of Judah after the Babylonian exile, and they're in renewed trouble, and he says to them, don't run off and make your own plan. Don't try to provide for and to protect yourselves. The words of God are trustworthy and true. They are faithful and true. Trust God. He will protect you. They didn't believe Jeremiah, and it turned out badly for them as a result of that. But we have the opportunity to trust him for his words that are faithful and true. To hold on to not only the promises for the future, but also then the implications of that in the present life. If this future is true, if the reality is the holiday at the sea, as, Saint, as, as, as C.S. Lewis says, then I, I need not waste my time making mud pies. There's much more than mud puddles to be concerned about. Those things that grab our attention and distract us and seem so important will in the blink of an eye be gone. And his kingdom will remain. And his eternity stretches out before us. And so keeping these words is to lean by faith into what we don't yet see and to live in light of God's eternity, to answer to that king instead of any present king because his word matters more. They overcame, remember, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of his testimony, and that they did not love their lives even unto death. That they did not love this present life more than God's future promise. 
That's how we overcome. That's how we live faithfully in this world. It's not a matter of a list of do's and things that I'm supposed to do, and if I live according to these principles, then these outcomes are going to happen. That's actually a somewhat shallow and even a self-serving of me model of the Christian life, but is to believe what God says, though I don't yet see it. Two, in the words of Hebrews chapter 11, to look for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I look for God's future rather than prosperity or popularity in the present, because not even Jesus had either of those in his life. He was not prosperous. He was not popular, and yet he turned the world upside down. And God would continue to do so, as we will see as we continue, through us. Keep the words. Keep these words. We dare not neglect them. I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard these things, and I heard and saw them, and I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you, and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. That's a strange episode in the midst of all this, isn't it? Why is John, the apostle, the last of the remaining apostles, why is he suddenly now bowing down again to an angel? John knows better than this, doesn't he? I think he's overcome in the moment, first of all. He's overcoming, and he's so grateful to, he's so grateful to the messengers who have brought him this. This tells you how, how important this vision is to John, and thus probably to the churches. Ought to be to us. Not to be neglected, but to be treasured. And so he's so grateful to the one who has brought it. And yet the angel reminds him the whole purpose of that is in this life, in the present now, we would not, we would not worship a messenger. We would worship God. That its impact on our lives would be one of worship, but a worship directed toward God. I'm reminded of the Bereans. Yeah, Paul's good. We'll listen to Paul, but we'll go back and we'll search the scripture and see if these things are, are so. The emphasis on what has God said? Has God really said that? You know, in the Eastern churches, the churches that that are founded in this area of the Mediterranean, where John is, they continued to have a problem of idolizing their heroes. And so even in the COVID pandemic, when it first began, a great problem in, around parts of the Mediterranean was they would have these icons, they call them. It's not an idol, it's an icon. It's an image, a very fancy image, a representation of one of the saints that they looked up to. And people, when they come to the church, they would kiss the image of this saint It disturbed me when I was there and I saw that. I understand the respect for others who have been faithful in following Christ, but it almost seemed like there was more adoration given to the, quote, saint than was given to the Lord himself. That's a dangerous thing. And I think that's what we're being warned against here. And certainly the implication that these words should cause us to worship our God. He said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And then another difficult statement. Let the evildoer still do evil, the filthy still be filthy, Let the, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I'll take the easier one first. What does this mean not to seal up the words of this prophecy? 
John's echoing something that was said to Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, where Daniel is given these visions that concern the tribulation period, which was far off, and he says, Daniel, seal up this writing because this is for the time of the end. John is told, do not seal this book because now we are in the time of the end. We don't know how long the time of the end is, but we are in that time. His coming is at any time. And so we need to be aware of it. We need to be aware of the hardships that will occur in this age as well as the glory that awaits at the end of this age. Don't seal it up. Don't leave it on the shelf. There's a funny thing that has happened in the evangelical church. In America and in the West, we have, we have had differing conclusions about some things, particularly in the area of eschatology of end times, about those things that relate to his kingdom and his coming. And we've had disagreements about the time or what that's actually going to be like. For instance, some evangelicals believe, as I described, that Jesus will come and he will establish his kingdom that will last for literally 1,000 years. Others say, no, I think we need to take that, understand that as a spiritual ideal, that 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 Messiah's kingdom already exists in the presence of his people. That's a, that's a difference. But we don't want to argue about our differences. Some people think the rapture is going to occur here. Other think it's going to happen here. So instead of debating the points and turning our church fellowship together into points of debate, we have minimized these things. In so doing, we have turned our attention away from the promise of the second coming and we focused instead on the first coming. Which is a wonderful thing to focus on, don't get me wrong. But in focusing on his first coming and Jesus in the Gospels in the past, and then in the letters, the applications of that into present day life, how should I then live because I have been redeemed by Christ who loved me and died for me? And so I'm going to work at at pleasing God then and following him and knowing him in the present for what? And that's the part we minimize. And yet it's been, it's been described that one-seventh of the New Testament concerns the second coming or refers to the second coming of Christ. This was the grand hope of the church, that the early church in the midst of troubles, they were reminded that Jesus died for them, they were forgiven, they were saved, but they were reminded even more that he is coming. You know, the prophets in the Old Testament, as they are exhorting the people of God, Israel, to return to faith in God and to live for him, even that remnant in the midst of an unbelieving people around them. They were reminded of past redemption all the way back to Passover. God had chosen them and God had redeemed them and called them out to be his people for his purposes. And they were reminded of a future hope and a restoration. And both the past redemption and the future hope were brought to bear on the issues that they were living in in that day. And that needs to be true for us as well. Not only past redemption... Jesus who came and died for us in his first coming. But Jesus who is coming again, who will rule and reign. And the sacrifices and the presence will be worth it all when we see Jesus. In neglecting the second coming, we have actually weakened 
our hope, which gives us the confidence to live for him in the present. It, it, it allows one, even, even as we'll hear about in the, among the persecuted church, it allows one to seemingly throw this life away. So that Paul's description of Christian living, which looks like this, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then we are, we are of all men most to be pitied because we are living and throwing our lives away for a future that will not happen. But when we take away that that promise of our future, when we lose sight of it, when it fades into the distant, it no longer affects our present. The purpose of the book of the Revelation, what we must take away from it, is this book is intended to meddle with your present. This book is intended to change the way you view today because you look at this short, very short today in light of eternity. And as the song says, when you turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim, the light of his glory and grace and the light of his glorious future that is before us. This is, this is going to change in the blink of an eye. And we dare not leave it on the shelves. We dare not seal it up and leave it for another time. We will not understand it fully. Revelation is a difficult book. You know, one of the reasons it's so difficult is because of all the Old Testament references. Things which actually made it a little easier for John's generation to understand it because we're more distant from the Old Testament, we have a harder time understanding it. Okay, that's to be understood. But it doesn't mean we say, well, that's too much. We can't understand it. That would take us back to the medieval church. The Bible's for somebody else to understand, not us common folk. No. God's word was given to you to sanctify you in his truth. Jesus said so. Jesus said, do not seal this up. Get this to the people so that my saints will be strengthened in their faith. And they will continue to live toward his promised future in the, in the, in the midst of present difficulties being clear of their confidence in Jesus' coming. And so, let the evildoer still do evil. What is he talking about there? Some of those Old Testament references. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 27, God says, Thus says the Lord God, He who will hear, let him hear. And he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse. For they are a rebellious house. They are who they are. Does God not care who believes? God is, God is not desiring that anybody should perish. Oh, he cares. But some will believe, some will hear, and some will not. I don't need to worry about the evil around me. I, and I need not be discouraged by it. Because even in the midst, as some continue to do evil, and in in. in in their defiling will continue to be defiled, there are also those, the righteous, who are doing right. And in those who are holy, who are continuing to be sanctified, would actually be a way you could translate that passive verb. They will continue in righteousness. They will continue in holiness. And they will be further sanctified by it, just as Jesus said, sanctify them in my truth. And so, that's the reality. We will live, and it may be in a majority, it might be in a minority. Leaning a little toward the second in our immediate setting. 
That's okay. Jesus says, I'll sort that out when I come. I am coming, my recompense is with me. His reward is with him, and he will be the one to judge rightly. We'll leave that with him. I need not be pronouncing condemnation on anybody today. I can warn them of that we are all accountable to God. And you know, I find people already know their guilt before him. We can warn them of their accountability before God and that there is forgiveness. And that forgiveness in Jesus. That's part coming. Also in Daniel 12, Daniel says, Many shall purify themselves, shall make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall still act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Jesus himself said, when, in, in, in giving that parable of an enemy had snuck in and he spoiled his neighbor's field by, by planting weeds, by throwing seeds for weeds in the midst of his field of wheat. Master, what shall we do? Shall we go in and pluck out all those weeds, all those tares? And the master says, no, no, leave them until the harvest. Let them grow up together until harvest, and then we'll take out the tares, and then we'll gather the weed into, into the barns. Let the two grow together. That's where we are. There will be wickedness because we are broken people in the midst of a fallen world. Don't let the evil of the day discourage you, however, because why? Jesus is coming, and he is sanctifying his church. He is growing us as those who are knowing and following him, even in the midst of an evil environment. So changing the environment is not the key. Although you want to be light in the midst of darkness, you want to be a blessing to others around you. But we won't fix it. Jesus will when he comes, and his reward is with him. The answer for the evildoer is the same answer as for you. And that's in verse 14. Blessed are those. The evildoer will do evil. The righteous will do righteously. Let those, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. He doesn't say those who do righteous. He said those who have washed their robes. Well, where do we wash our robes? Where is the laundry then? And what is all this focus on robes? I think the robes thing goes back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve were found naked. They realize their guilt. They realize their exposure and their shame in it. And so they sought to cover themselves with leaves. A poor and unlasting, not lasting plan. And God instead provides a covering for them to cover their exposure because of their guilt and their shame. And yet an innocent animal must die in order to provide a covering for them. Already in Genesis chapter 3, we see the gospel. An innocent one dies in our place to provide a covering for our guilt and shame. And so, where is it we go to wash? Well, it was answered in Revelation chapter 7, where there is this multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, those who have washed their robes and made them clean in the blood of the Lamb, in his death for them. Jesus died for them to forgive and to remove their guilt and to give them instead his right standing before God. That is the gospel. And that's what he's reminding us again. Him. Blessed are those, not who behave a little better than others, who do more righteous than others, or who are not quite as evil as some. Blessed are those, anyone among fallen humanity, 
who wash their robes in forgiveness in Jesus. That's the point. Our confidence, blessed are those who wash their robes and have the right to eat of the tree of life that they may enter the city gates outside of the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexual immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. There are two kinds of people. There are those who are blessed, those who are washed, those who are forgiven, those who enter into God's presence. And there are those who are outside, who are condemned. Because of what they do, they are condemned before God because of their immorality, because they have trusted themselves to falsehoods instead. That's a theme you find all through the Scripture. What are you believing in? Who are you trusting? And he says these words are faithful and true. These words are trustworthy. We can rely upon them. And so Jesus says, I've sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. These things are for you to know, John, not for yourself, not for the theologian, but for the church. He says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Here again is the promise of the king and his coming. Jesus is the one who David comes from. Jesus is the one who created David among all things. Jesus is the Lord who made the promise to David that a son of his would reign on his throne forever. And Jesus is that greater son whom David himself referred to as my Lord. David's son would be greater than David. That's turning things upside down. Because David's son would be the Lord God incarnate. God translated into humanity. The root, the source, and the descendant of David, fulfilling the Davidic promise of the king who would come and deliver and reign, the bright and morning star, because the night is at hand, but day is coming, when the sun of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. And so, in response to that hope, what do we do with it? What difference does it make? How is it that a woman who sees her village burned by those who hate her because of Jesus, how is it that she could still declare to them that Jesus is Lord and he would save you too? It's because in verse 17, being captivated by this hope, being strengthened in our faith by his promise, which is trustworthy and true, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. There's that Isaiah 5 offer again. Oh, if you're thirsty, come to the waters. You have no money. Come, buy and eat. Wine and milk, without money, without cost, freely given to you. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. God, by His Holy Spirit, continues to invite, and He does it through His church. He does it through you. He does it through me. Every one of us knows somebody who does not believe in Jesus. You have those that you're praying for those that you're burdened by, those that you would love to finally, spiritually, the light would come on and they would see what it is that God has done for them in Jesus, for them in Jesus and they would believe in him too. And you're praying for that day. You're calling out to God. 
You're talking with them. You're trying to invite them. You're trying to show them that which you know. And the clearer you are in your faith, in his coming, the clearer you are in God's eternal promises versus the present seeming realities, the more God's promise will control your present. And you will then be showing them something worth believing because you yourself are believing it. You cannot believe what you haven't, in a sense, grabbed hold of. Like Jamie saw the ocean. And he hasn't comprehended the Pacific Ocean. But he's got a bigger glimpse of water than he ever knew or imagined before. That's kind of, for us, the book of Revelation. Oh, it's bigger than we can see. There's more there than than we can plumb its depths. And yet we've got a bigger glimpse of our Lord, our King, and His coming, and His kingdom, and even beyond there in eternity that will be far better and that is worth sacrificing for. Can I parallel? There's going to come a time, five years from now, ten years from now, where the sacrifices that were made to replace the Chapman building with that new education building that's added on, and if by then there's that auditorium gym, gym, with with the gymnasium building as well, and the kind of things we're able to do in that space, and you're going to wander those halls one day, and you're going to be grateful for the sacrifice you made. That is nothing compared to when you walk streets of gold. And you say, wow, how did I ever hold back? How did I ever withdraw and keep my head down and play it safe when all of this was our reality? That's that's what the book of Revelation is meant to do for us. And so to keep in it, although I don't fully understand it, there's bits in here that give me all kinds of trouble. As there are parts that you read, don't let those parts keep you from reading it. Trust that it's all understandable. And if nothing else, grab hold of the big bits. Grab hold of the reality and the very clear picture that's painted of our glorious future with our God and our Savior in His restored garden and a huge city so the garden is bigger than that forever. I go to prepare a place for you, he said, and I will come and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And it will put everything that distracted us to shame. That's what's before us. Being clear in our confidence in his coming, we will then confidently invite others to come as well. This should compel us. This should constrain us. The reality of his future ought to change how we relate in the present. The more God's truth grabs hold of you, the more you'll find it leaking out of you. I'm not, I'm not going to this morning push you hard to say you need to tell three more people this week than you did last week. We're not setting goals here. No, no. I'm saying feed your soul. Feed your soul. Feed your soul on your hope in Christ. Let his word, his precious truth about his future and all these done for us in Jesus, let that soak into your soul and you will not be able to help its leaking out of you to others. Being clear in our confidence is coming, we will confidently invite others to join in. So then I warn everybody in verse 18 who hears the prophecies of this book, 
If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. If anyone takes away the words of the book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described. That's a strong warning. But it's really, it would boil down to Deuteronomy 4, and I gave you this, this reference in your notes, and Deuteronomy 12, which moves into 13. 1232, actually in the Hebrew Bible is the first verse of chapter 13, which is the warning uh, for any prophet. Do not add to these words, do not take away. When, when God gave the, the five books of Moses, he said, don't add to these words and don't take away from him. In chapter 4, don't follow other teachers like Balaam. There are some who say, oh sure, you can be saved by Jesus, and you can be saved by this or that or that. God will save people in all kinds of ways. But that's not true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. There are things that can be added to the book or taken away from the book. In the days of the Reformation, prior to that, the book had been taken away from the people. It's too hard for you. You can't understand it. You need to just listen to us. And they added instead traditions of men. And they actually walled people off from the gospel. Probably not the original intention of any of that. But don't do that yourself. Don't wall yourself off from this hope because you think understanding God's future is too hard. You don't have to understand it all. But feed your faith on the fact that he is coming. Today, there are people around us who would add to these books. They have their own books. They're going to come and knock on your door and they say, well, yeah, the Bible's all right, but you know, it's not really translated correctly. It's been corrupted over the years, so God gave us these other books instead. They have added to the books. You know something the prophets were warned about is, and we think of the prophets in terms of adding new stuff, but the prophets did not add anything that Moses didn't already talk about. All of their specific promises of the exile and even the glorious future of restoration, all of that was first referred to by Moses at the end of Deuteronomy 28 to 30. It's all there, and all the prophets are doing is sharpening the focus. And that's what Jesus is doing for us in the book of Revelation. He's sharpening the focus of what God has already promised us and what we need to hold on to. And we don't need any other further books that are going to deny who Jesus is and what he's done for us. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, I am coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That is our hope. And the grace of our Lord Jesus will be with you all. That is our help. His coming is our hope. His grace to us in this present hour is our help. And part of that grace to us is this picture, this truth by which we can be clear in our confidence in his coming so that we will then be more confident in inviting others to come with us. This book is intended by God to be our hope, to be our help. Don't let its difficulties keep you away. If you need to understand more of the Bible, especially to understand the Old Testament images, to understand it more fully, don't let that keep you away. Pick away at it along the way. You will get more. You'll know more. You'll understand more. And yet, grab hold of the truth God has given you. These words are trustworthy and true. Jesus is coming as king. We will live with him. Blessed are those who keep these words, then who hold on to these promises so that they impact life. Being so strengthened, let the church, by the Spirit, 
say, come with us into God's eternity. And even in the difficulties that come in the present, the Lord's hope will be our strength and his spirit, his grace will be our help. We're going to do something just a little different now than we had originally planned. I want us to come to the table, so I'm going to invite, even as the worship team comes forward, those who are serving the table to come forward, and we're going to pass. We're going to practice that invitation part. We're going to practice that, the spirit and the bride say, come part. That as we, we uh, pass these elements one to another, because you heard the gospel from somebody. You will share the gospel with somebody. That we all need to actually hear the gospel from others as well to be reminded, my brother, my sister, you are forgiven. It's good that you confess your sin, but also know you are forgiven. We need to hear that from one another, don't we? And so we will pass these elements one to another, and they, they are They are for all who have believed. And maybe you believe clearly for the first time in your thinking this morning. Maybe this is the time when you would say, God, I believe you concerning Jesus, whom you sent in my place, that his death would pay for my guilt and so that I could be restored into right relationship with you. God, I believe you for the salvation you've given me in Jesus. If that's the prayer of your heart this morning, then individually receive that in this symbol, reminding us of Jesus' life given for us in our place. So the servers will, will, will pass the trays among you, and then they'll come back, and uh, we will serve each other at the front as well. We'll practice this invitation. Come.